Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. As you know, I have been preaching a series of messages entitled, A Call for Men to be Godly. And thus far in this series, there has been a call for men to be sexually pure. And there has been a call for men to be spiritually industrious. Men, we are called by God to be sexually pure and to be spiritually industrious. Last week in Ephesians chapter 5, we looked at verses 15 to 17 with particular application to men. These verses speak of being what I've called spiritually industrious. Look at verses 15 to 17, Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Last week I said this and I'll repeat it again. Godly men are careful how they walk. They're careful how they live. And godly men carefully consider how to use their time for the glory of God, lest they be drawn away into the evil days we live in. Godly men do not live foolishly, but instead they seek to know and do the moral will of God and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. So men, as I said last week, we must pay careful attention to how we live, purposing to walk in wisdom and according to the will of God, using our time for His glory. We must give ourselves to spiritual industry. We must be spiritually industrious men, careful and meticulous about our lives, that they might bring glory to God. And in this way, we will flee from the temptations of the world, we will say no to the lust of the flesh, and we will escape the snares of the devil. In this way, we will walk in the will of God, And be what God has called us to be as men. This morning we see another call in scripture. It is a call to be sober and spirit filled. Men are to be sexually pure, spiritually industrious, and now this morning sober and spirit filled. Look at verse 18. Ephesians 5 verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine. For that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now you'll remember from last week the three commands of verses 15 to 17. Verse 15, be careful how you walk. Verse 17, do not be foolish, but the third command, understand what the will of the Lord is. And we talked about the structure of that, how We understand what it means to be careful how we walk by what we do not do. Do not walk this way. Do not be unwise, but walk this way. Make the most of your time, purposefully using your time in things that are pleasing to God. Do not be foolish, but 
In contrast, understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, the structure of verse 18 is similar. Do not do this, but instead do this. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So this verse continues the instruction concerning how Christians can walk carefully and wisely. Believers' lives are not to be characterized by the sins of their unsaved days. Again, remember in verse 8, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So now in verse 18, the Apostle Paul identifies a particular sin that is characteristic of darkness and that often characterizes those who walk in darkness. It is the sin of drunkenness. Drunkenness is a common sin among those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And Paul says it is to be put away from the Christian. It should not be a part of the Christian's life. Drunkenness is marked by debauchery and a lack of self-control, which brings along with it all kinds of other sins. Instead, Christians are to be marked by self-control, temperance, soberness, and sober-mindedness. And therefore, the apostle commands, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. This is to be true of all believers. But let me speak to you men who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and belong to him. Men, God calls us to be sober men. Literally. Sober men. Men, drunkenness is a dangerous and destructive sin, which is contrary to your new life in Christ. We are to be men who are characterized by moderation, temperance, and self-control. And men, if you're going to live the Christian life to the glory of God, if you're to grow in sanctification, you must be clear-headed sensible, and of sound judgment. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 5 and 6 says, You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be, listen to the words, alert and sober. And again, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, the Bible says, But since we are of the day, let us be sober. 1 Peter 1, verse 13 says, Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. 1 Peter 4, verse 7 says, Be of sound judgment and sober spirit. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There's a need for spiritual alertness 
There's a need for vigilance. Spiritual watchfulness. Drunkenness prevents that. And it makes you easy prey to a scheming and vicious lion, the devil himself. We are to be sober. I just read to you a number of verses that speak to that. Let us be sober. And you find that exhortation often coupled with words like sensible or A description like, be of sound judgment, be alert, because to be sober and sober-minded means that we indeed are thinking clearly, we're sensible in our thoughts, and therefore our actions, we're of sound judgment. The Greek word translated sober in the verses I just read is the opposite of intoxicated. One Greek lexicon says that this word means to be free from confusion, to be clear-headed and self-possessed. We are to literally be sober, not intoxicated, since we are called to be spiritually alert, sober-minded, sober in spirit, having sound judgment. And all this is necessary if we're to be godly believers, if we're to be godly men who are walking carefully and wisely in this present evil age. Titus 2, verse 2 says, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Now you'll notice the word temperate. Back in the days of the temperance movement, you understand that word came from this understanding that temperance means self-controlled, to be sober. And the word is used there of older men. They are to be temperate in Titus 2, verse 2. It's translated in the English Standard Version Older men are to be sober-minded, or the King James, or the New King James simply says sober. Older men are to be sober. Of course, that's true of all Christians. But it's pointed out in particular there. And it uses another word when it says older men are to be temperate, dignified. Then it uses this word, sensible, translated in the ESV, the English Standard Version, as self-controlled. The Greek word translated there means having a sound or healthy mind, as having ability to curb desires and impulses so as to produce a measured and orderly life. That's one Greek lexicon, how it defines what is translated sensible in Titus 2, verse 2. Again, a has to do with our minds. The ability then, because we're clear-headed, we have sound judgment, we're thinking clearly, we're thinking biblically and rightly. There's this spiritual sober-mindedness and alertness, watchfulness, so that now we can curb desires, sinful desires and impulses, so that our lives are now, I love the phrase, measured and orderly. See, this is that, how it ties to the spiritually industrious life careful how we walk so that our lives are are marked by doing the will of God. 
There's a word that's used to describe what pastors must be, and it's translated respectable. It's an interesting word, respectable. It's hard to know exactly how to translate it into English. Uh, the, the word in the Greek comes from the word cosmos. And when we think of the cosmos, we think of uh, the universe and we think of the things that we see, the cosmos around us. And, and the word has to do in an orderly arrangement. It all works together. It functions together at God's design and at God's care and sustaining power for the purposes for which he created, but there's an orderliness to it. Uh, ladies, you think of cosmetics. It comes from the word cosmos, and, and how you use cosmetics is to be well-arranged and ordered in a particular way. And so the word behind that that says pastors must be this, but it should be true of all believers, that is translated respectable. And the idea is that our lives are well-ordered and measured and in a way that now when people see that life, they say that is a life that is to be respected, an example to be followed. All these words are similar. We're to be temperate, sober-minded, sensible, self-controlled. Our lives ordered and arranged according to the will of God. So men, we must be sensible. We're called to be clear-headed, alert, watchful, sober in spirit, exercising sound judgment. We're called to be men of spiritual and mental acuity. The word acuity means sharp and not dull. Our faculties and our minds must be alert, not sleepy or unthinking, not inattentive or incautious. Again, drunkenness prevents us from being those things. Romans 12 verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That's very close to what Paul said in Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. You're to not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How do you do that? Your mind must be renewed. How can our minds be renewed and sanctified if they are impaired by alcohol or drugs? So instead of being controlled by or impaired by alcohol or any other substance, we're to be controlled, Paul says, by the Holy Spirit. Be filled. Be controlled by. Not wine. Not alcohol. Not drugs. But be filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. Men, if you are to be sanctified, if you are to escape the snares and schemes of the evil one, if you are to resist temptation from within and from the world, if you're to be godly men, men who love your wives, men who bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, if you're to lead your homes, men, if you're to protect your families from spiritual dangers, 
If you're to be men who lead in the church, who build up the body of Christ, men, if you're to be witnesses in the world, then you must be sober men. Literally and figuratively. Do not get drunk with wine. For that is dissipation. That's the very opposite of walking wisely and carefully making the most of your time and understanding and doing the will of God. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So just to repeat, godly men are sober in spirit, sober-minded, of sound mind, alert, mentally sharp, and watchful. Godly men are sober men. This morning... Let's consider the negative injunction in verse 18, the prohibition, no pun intended. Do not get drunk with wine. And next week, we'll consider, but be filled with the Spirit. Let me begin with a very clear and pithy statement. One that you might not think has to be said, but indeed does need to be said. Drunkenness is sin. Drunkenness is sin. It is described as one of the deeds of the flesh, which characterizes unbelievers. In Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, it says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. It's clear. What are they? Paul writes, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Drunkenness is sin. And believers who commit this sin must repent. It is not to be a part of our lives as believers. And the Bible says that pastors must not be addicted to wine. Titus 1 verse 7 says that overseers must be above reproach as God's stewards, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine. Quite literally, the word there is to be drunken. And it says you're not to be drunken. It's translated in the New American Standard, not addicted to wine. But quite literally, it just means not drunken. Deacons must not be addicted to wine, 1 Timothy 3 verse 8. It must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine. Now the word there translated, again, addicted, here, is a word that means to be consumed and enslaved by something. It means that you're giving heed to something, that it controls you in some way and enslaves you in some way. And so it means do not give heed to wine. Don't bow down before it. 
and be its slave. The Bible says that women are not to be drunkards. Titus 2 verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. Now there it's translated enslaved because a different Greek word is used in the original language, douluo, literally it means to become a slave of something, to submit yourself to something. We're not to be enslaved to wine. Here in Ephesians 5.18, it is given to all Christians, do not be drunk with wine. Now, language matters. And I am not a Greek scholar, but I do know some of the trends that tend to happen in our language and even among believers and how we begin to describe things. And you will notice that in my description of certain things, I read the New American Standard, and so it says we're not to be addicted to wine. But when you look at the Greek words behind this, addicted might not be the best English translation, given the the common usage of addiction today. Today, people understand addictions to be something you just can't help. It's just who you are. It's a part of your genetic makeup. And you never can really not be that thing. You're just addicted to it and and you're in recovery your whole life. But you never recover or in biblical terms, you never really repent. There's not true change. So, So you will not hear me unless I slip up or I'm just reading that translation. You will not hear me say regarding sin matters that they are addictions. There are those who even say what we've talked about, about being sexually pure, that you can be addicted to sexual immorality. And they begin to describe this addiction in terms of nothing more than chemical things happening in the body. But we are more than a body. We are those who have been made body and soul accountable to God. So you'll hear me say not things like addicted but enslaved. He who is consumed with wine will be consumed by it. It will enslave you. Drunkenness is sin. It's not a disease. I've spoken on this before, but let me just remind you again that today from psychology, we've gotten what is commonly called a disease model of sin. That sin now is seen as a disease. What once was called sin is now a disease or a disorder. And so Christians have bought into this, what you would call a disease model of sin. And a part of that is that we've begun to call drunkenness alcoholism. I understand that we use that term and we use it as a descriptive term, but you you really should understand where it comes from. It comes from the idea that this is a disease rather than a sin before God. And we become accustomed to excusing the sin of drunkenness. 
So you will not find me saying any longer. There was a time in which when I was enslaved as an unbeliever to wine and alcohol that I would have, as a new believer, said this. In a very short time, if it were not by the grace of God, I would have become a, an alcoholic. But then begin to understand things biblically and I stopped using that language. Drunkenness is a sin, not a disease. And as a sin, it is not to be excused, accepted, defended, or tolerated, but avoided, put away, put to death, hated, confessed, and repented of. Sometimes drunkenness is excused and accepted by defining it by its most severe manifestations. We kind of excuse drunkenness by saying, well, I'm not in a drunken stupor. So some define drunkenness as being intoxicated to the point of stammering and staggering and not being able to function or walk. But that's not how Scripture defines drunkenness. When we understand what God calls us to be, sober-minded, clear-headed, having sound judgment alert, then we understand that the use of alcohol can cause that to be, or cause us not to be able to be those things way before we get to a drunken stammer. When I was a very young Christian, I went on a missions trip to Spain and one of the members of that missions team that I met there uh, was from England, and I remember him talking about, among other things, how he liked to drink. And, and having been recently saved out of drunkenness, I didn't want to imbibe in that at all. And he would say, well, it helps me to loosen up. When I'm in social settings, I talk more with folks when I drink. And even as a young Christian, I understood that's the effects of the alcohol on you. Even the world recognizes that there are what we might call degrees of drunkenness. Being buzzed or tipsy is being affected by the alcohol so that we're no longer clear-headed in the manner God has called us to be as believers. The word intoxicated means to be affected by alcohol. It has been defined this way, if you look it up, to affect temporarily with diminished physical and mental control by means of alcoholic liquor, a drug, or another substance. So because of the dangers of that, the effects alcohol has on the mind, one's judgment and discernment, one's ability to drive in a car, the legal system must have some careful definition of intoxication. So you may be aware, the, the so-called Ad Council, or if you drive into South Carolina, there's, there's actually uh, one of those boards that lights up that, that says this, buzzed driving is drunk driving. But some Christians might say, well, being buzzed or whatever terminology you want to put, that's not drunkenness, but even the world knows it is. 
It's amazing how even unbelievers, when it comes to the mental acuity needed to drive a vehicle, has to remind us that if you're buzzed, your mental acuity is not there and it's dangerous. So buzz driving is the same thing as drunk driving. So don't fool yourself into thinking that you're not sinning when the alcohol is affecting your thinking and your faculties, even to some slight degree. Again, sometimes drunkenness is excused or accepted by defining it only by its most severe manifestations. But any degree of drunkenness is sin. Why? Because God calls us to be mentally sharp, alert. All the verses I just read to you and laying the foundation of this. Sometimes drunkenness is excused or accepted by twisting the scriptures to appease one's conscience. Well, I can drink. That's my Christian liberty. Yes, that's on the face a true statement, but don't use your liberty as an excuse to sin. Or someone might say, oh, the the first miracle of Jesus recorded in John's gospel was turning water into wine at a wedding feast. But that's not a license to get drunk. Some twist what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy to excuse their drunkenness. Remember in 1 Timothy 5 verse 23, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. In your frequent ailments. Now let me just take a moment and explain that a little bit. Evidently, Timothy was very concerned for his qualifications for ministry, that he would be a godly man, as he should have been. And Paul told Timothy that elders, overseers, pastors, 1 Timothy 3.3, must not be addicted to wine or enslaved to wine. The man who would be a pastor must not be enslaved to alcoholic beverages, to wine. He must not be a drunkard. He must not be ruled by wine. And it seems that Timothy had made a personal decision that he would abstain from drinking wine altogether. We get that from the instruction when Paul says, no longer drink water exclusively. Evidently, he said, no, I'm just going to drink water exclusively. So it seems that Timothy was abstaining from wine altogether. And while the Bible does not teach that Christians or pastors or deacons must abstain from drinking wine altogether, it does warn of its dangers, as we'll see shortly. So if a Christian decides to abstain from drinking wine, that's his prerogative too, right? That's his liberty. That's what I've chosen to do. It's my liberty to do so. Evidently, Timothy had made that same choice. And it seems from that verse, the context would be this, that he did not want to give cause to be accused of being enslaved to wine. Therefore, he abstained altogether. However, in this case, Timothy could have benefited from a little wine. And Paul says, for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Dysentery was common in that day and in that region. 
If Timothy was disposed to stomach ailments, a little wine must have been a benefit to him. Again, we don't know exactly what Timothy's ailments were, but evidently a little wine, quote-unquote, probably a little wine mixed with water, was of some help to him. Paul is not telling Timothy to drink wine for wine's sake. Exercise your liberty! No, there was some medicinal benefit for Timothy. So Timothy, being very concerned about being above reproach, didn't want to give opportunity to be enslaved to wine. He didn't want to give the appearance of being enslaved to wine. So Paul, in that context, speaks to him and says, Timothy, you're not sinning. You need it for your stomach. It would help you. And in bringing this up, Paul was also letting the church at Ephesus know that Timothy was now, drink, was now drinking a little wine. Eyebrows might have been raised for Timothy to make such a change. But this lets the church know that Timothy was not simply abandoning a well-known decision of drinking only water. He was taking the advice of the apostle for health reasons. My point in bringing up this verse is that some have rationalized their enslavement to wine by simply saying, well, Paul told Timothy to drink wine. Instead of simply touting our liberty, brethren, can I just direct our focus in another way? We really need to give ear to the warnings of Scripture, of the dangers of wine. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Listen to this, Proverbs 23, beginning in verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Did you hear what he just said? He's asking, who has woe, sorrow, contentions, complaining, wounds without cause, redness of eyes? What's the answer? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. We need to to not just say, oh, liberty, and ignore what Scripture says about the dangers of drunkenness, the dangers and the carefulness that we need to proceed in this area. Drunkenness is sin. But as I said, drunkenness is a dangerous and destructive sin. Why? One reason is because of its associations. It's rarely alone. Sins are almost always accompanied, as I often say, by friends. The same is true of drunkenness. It invites many friends to the party. Proverbs 25, verse 28 says, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. 
When you're drunk with wine, you don't have control over your spirit. It's impaired. Proverbs says someone who is impaired in that way and does not have self-control, which is characteristic of drunkenness, it's like a city that's broken into without walls, without defenses, and all kinds of other sins will rush in. Immorality, sensuality are among them, often accompanied by drunkenness. Listen to Romans 13, verse 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing and in carousing and drunkenness. And here, notice what's, I don't think just a random espousing of other sins, but I think closely related often, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. These things often go together with drunkenness. Relationships are affected by the sin of drunkenness. Not only because of a lack of fulfilling responsibilities when we're drunk, but because of how this sin actively destroys relationships. Strife is often the consequence of drunkenness. Is it necessary to prove how drunkenness often leads to abuse, physical and verbal? When a person is drunk, he loses control over his faculties. He has no control over his spirit. His heart, his mind are susceptible to all kinds of sins. And therefore, it is a dangerous and destructive sin. It has grave consequences. So it's in that light that, listen, the Word of God, that God... Do we believe, let me just say this, do we believe in the the authority of Scripture? Do we believe that every word is inspired by God? Do we believe that there's an intention here of the Holy Spirit in causing the Apostle Paul to be born along to say, do not be drunk with wine. Do not get drunk with wine. Or any other intoxicating drink any mind-altering drug. Do not fall for its passing pleasures. Do not think that you can just imbibe in it to cope with trials or anxieties. In the end, it will only add trials. William Hendrickson wrote, intoxication is not the effective remedy for the cares and worries of this life. It is the devil's poor substitute for the joy unspeakable and full of glory which God provides. And in the final analysis, those who are drunkards demonstrate they do not know the grace of God. For the Bible is clear that drunkards do not inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, those who are drunkards can have no assurance that they belong to Christ. Drunkenness is a dangerous and destructive sin, which is contrary to your new life in Christ. And that's why in Ephesians 5.18 it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. And dissipation is contrary to your new life in Christ. The word dissipation means 
the act of one who has abandoned himself to reckless and immoral behavior. Drunkenness is reckless. It's morally reckless behavior. Spiritually reckless behavior. The word translated dissipation here has a related adverb that means to live recklessly, riotously, and loosely. This is the word that was used in Luke 15 verse 13 of the prodigal son who squandered his estate with loose, riotous living. Drunkenness is in the category of reckless behavior. We're not to be characterized by those things, believers, men. We're not to have reckless lives. Again, think of what we just talked about last week. Being careful how we walk and walking wisely and according to the will of God, not recklessly. We're not to have a lack of mental faculties. We're to have sound judgment. We're not to be characterized by dissipation, but self-control. We're not to live lives of debauchery, but holiness. And so there's a contrast here in this verse, in verse 18, between the effects of wine, which is dissipation, and the fruit of the Spirit. What or who is in control of your life? What or who can... You know, rules your life. Is it the Spirit of God? Let me conclude by having you turn to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. Now, when I say Proverbs 31, what comes to your mind is probably, oh, Proverbs 31. We talk about the Proverbs 31 woman. That's described there, beginning in verse 10. But how often do we forget about verses 1 to 9? Look at Proverbs 31, verses 1 to 9. The words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. Here's what his mother wisely taught him. What, O my son... And what, O son of my womb? And what, O son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women or your ways to that which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. For they will drink and forget what is decreed. And pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. I understand this is a proverb. It's not saying that if you have some terminal illness that you can give yourselves to drunkenness. Or if you have some bitter experience in life that you can cope with it through wine. It's just a statement of fact that there are those who go to those things. Verse 7, let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Open your mouth for the mute. This is what the king is to do. For the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. In other words, Lemuel's mother is saying, if you're going to, to rule righteously, you need to have clear 
sober thinking. You don't need to be affected by wine. It's not for kings to drink wine and desire strong drink because of the responsibilities herein. One commentator says this, her, that is the mother's first concern, is for her son's vulnerability to sexual or sensual enticements. Like so many other calls within Proverbs, the warning here is to bring one's desires under the control of God's higher purposes in morality, like the wine that will be warned of next, beginning in verse 4, has an intoxicating and addictive, or I'll say enslaving, nature. So he goes from the dangers of immorality to the dangers of wine and drinking wine. In verses 4 and 5, again, one commentator said this, she, that is the mother, reminds us that those who carry the responsibility of leadership surrender certain freedoms that those in lesser circumstances may be able to enjoy. It is not for kings. It is not for kings, she says. The commentator says, authority brings responsibility. Our lives are not our own. Great matters weigh in the balance, and the king's verdict will make the difference. He needs a clear head and a keen mind, verse 5, to render just and wise decisions. Alcohol stands alongside immorality in impairing judgment. Now you say, why are you bringing this up? Are you going to start preaching and teaching abstinence? No. No. Let me be clear, we have liberty to drink wine, alcoholic beverages, as long as it's not to the point of beginning to affect our minds, our thinking, our judgment, and be impaired. But I do want to maybe, where the seems to be the balance has been toward liberty, 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 I'm not trying to do a commercial. That just hit me. (laughs) Sometimes, let's go back to the seriousness of the subject. Sometimes we use liberty as a reason to imbibe in a particular behavior or actions. But liberty means freedom. Liberty is not a command to do it. It's not a command to do a thing of which there is liberty. Wisdom must be accompanied in areas of wisdom. And if something controls you and you are sinning, that's not liberty, that's enslavement. I have the freedom to have a mobile phone. I have the freedom to get on the internet, the internet. But does that mean that I should not restrict that freedom that liberty in certain situations for higher reasons and in order to flee sin, sometimes true liberty and freedom means we abstain. That's walking wisely. And so I'm calling you men in particular. Be careful how you walk and think clearly about these things. And in light of Proverbs 31, let me make some application to you men. Men, we sometimes speak of our responsibilities in the home is likened to that of a prophet, priest, and king. The man is to be like a prophet in his home, teaching the word of God, instructing 
and bringing up his children in the things of God. He's to be like a priest, concerned for the sins of his family, bringing his family before God and proclaiming the gospel to them. And the man is to be like a king, not lording it over his family, but managing his household well under the rule of God and of Christ and doing so with righteousness and justice. Yes, we would all agree that a king of a nation needs mental acuity, discernment, sound judgment. He needs to be sober and sober-minded if he is to rule well. Men, is it not true of us as well? who are to rule our homes and manage our households? Is it not true of a man, a husband, and a father? Men, we too need to beware of the dangers of wine and strong drink. And I would appeal to you in this way. What a responsibility we have as men. In the home, in the church, and in the world. And I appeal to you to seriously consider how to walk carefully and wisely in these evil days in which we live. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. Men, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And in light of your calling in Christ... And in light of the command to walk in love, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. In light of your calling and responsibilities in the home, in the church, and in the world. Men, do not get drunk with wine. For that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. Next week, God willing, we'll see what that then looks like. To be a man filled with the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, these are matters that we must be careful over, for your word has spoken regarding these things. And Lord, I pray that we would not use areas of liberty is a salve for a conscience that should be convicted. Father, I pray that we all would be careful, for we know that this is a sin that runs rampant in our society, not only with wine, but with all kinds of drugs, and now the legalization of marijuana in so many places. God, I pray that we would be, as Christians, sober-minded that we would think clearly. Lord, we need to be renewed in our minds. We need to be sanctified in our minds. We need our minds to be sharp and alert for the days are evil and there's a powerful adversary and the temptations are pressing upon us. Father, I pray that we would be careful how we walk and in particular in this area Father, I pray for the men in particular. May we be men who are sober and sober-minded so that we can, by your grace, walk carefully, fulfill our callings, 
and glorify our Savior who has redeemed us with his precious blood. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.